You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. This is Rintoul and Sermon. Jamie Todd, uh, Jamie Todd in for a vacation in Scott Rintoul. I like that one, Greg. I don't know what it is, but I like that beats. It's got a good one to it. No, not jumping in here. Okay, just gonna leave me hanging. Bang bang. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> it's Bang Bang by AJR. I like it. Keep that one in the rotation. All right. Until until Scott comes back, and he probably wants his uh, what Seattle grunge music. That's what Scott likes, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Jamie CFL season is right around the corner. Literally, it's tomorrow. Yes. Uh, gets underway tomorrow night in Winnipeg. The reigning Grey Cup champions open their 2019 title defense against the team they beat, the Hamilton Tiger Cats. The BC Lions open their season on the road at Mosaic Field in Regina against the 2019 CFL. Most outstanding player finalist, Cody Fajardo, the quarterback. Then a pair of games on Saturday, Argo Stampeders and Red Blacks and Elks. I mean, there are so many questions going into this season, more than ever before. We always see a ton of roster turnover within the CFL from right. year to year. That's one of the difficulties that the that the league has, right? It's just you can't market too many players on certain teams because the roster turnover is just so high. But there's no preseason games. We haven't seen players play since November of 2019. Um, I really don't know what to expect. It's a 14-game season. It's a, basically a sprint. We always used to say, well, the CFL season doesn't start till after Labor Day. But with 14 games versus 18 games, you get off to a tough start. It could be really tough to make up ground in this season just because we actually kind of have no idea how it's going to go COVID-wise. Like, there's just so yeah. much up in the air. Yeah, there's always the chance of cancellations. And, you know, we'll get into the, the league's cancellation policy maybe a little bit when Neil McAvoy joins us. But it's also, you know, we saw that rash of injuries around the league at the start of training camps, right? As guys mm -hmm. try to get back up to game speed in a hurry after a long, long layoff, right? And that's going to not put aside even the turnover, but just, you know, even if you had identical rosters from two years ago, it would be really hard to make predictions because you don't know where everyone's game is at. You don't know what everyone's, uh, you know, physical level right. is that right now what we do know is mike riley is back of the quarterback of the bc lions he's healthy uh jamie we had him on our station i want to say probably three four weeks ago while they were up in kamloops just started up in kamloops uh he feels really good about where he is physically right now remember second to last game third to last game of the season in edmonton when bc was still technically um alive in the playoff picture he broke his wrist he did say if the lions had made the playoffs he would have probably come back and play in that playoff game but the good thing is mike riley is healthy and the bc lions need mike riley as healthy and speaking of the bc lions we are joined now by neil mcavoy co-general manager of the bc lions neil long time no speak how you doing I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me on and the opportunity to talk uh, three-down football. Absolutely. I'm super excited for the season to start. I can't believe you guys are on the field or your team's on the field in a couple of days in Regina. The season starts tomorrow in Winnipeg. Just first of all, just how excited are you? You said excited to be talking three-down football, excited to see it again, watch it, get the product out there in front of the fan bases. Yeah, very, very excited. Um, you know, training camp's one thing, but, um, you know, going into playing games. And uh, I'm excited, you know what, uh, not only for our fans and the country of Canada, I'm excited for the young men we've brought in from the United States to just experience what Canadian football is all about. And um, there's nothing like walking into the friendly confines of uh, uh, Mosaic Stadium in front of 35,000 people, which we're going to do uh, Friday night. So I'm excited about the whole thing, and I'm just glad to be back. 
Neil, just before we got you on the line, we were talking a little bit about the challenges of training camp this year in particular. After so many of these players coming off a long, long time without playing competitive football, considering all of those challenges that your players have had to face over the last 18 months or so, how would you say your team has handled and performed at training camp this year? Uh, do you know what? Quite, quite, quite well. And you know what? The challenges. Yeah, the challenges that you're saying are not the challenges that I felt we were going to have. To be quite honest, football being a ultra-competitive, ultra-dominant sport, you know what, having the year off for a lot of these guys I think has helped them. Um, if, you, if you came to training camp and saw Chris Rainey, you couldn't tell me that the year off did not help him. He's, he looks like a kid um, that has, has, hasn't played in five years, and he's now running like he, he did five years ago. So I think the time off physically has helped our team what um, you know logistically coming into training camp with the covid and the pcr tests and you know the the fact that the american border is closed and trying to get you know 70 americans across the canadian american border those are the logistical issues that we really had to fight for and um, at the end of the day it it all worked out and uh, the fact we were on the field uh, july 10th as a football team was excited to see. So, you know, we did have a bunch of challenges and, you know, I, there, there were some on-field stuff that, uh, you know, like I said, the year off might, um, might have hurt some guys like, you know, um, you know, the likes of Mike Riley throwing a thousand balls day one probably didn't help him. But <laughs> the reality is, is that, you know what, everyone was excited. And um, at the end of the day, we, we came out uh, pretty much, uh, you know, a healthy football team and ready to go. The other unique thing about this CFL season among many is no preseason games. How much more difficult does that make it for you to assess your roster before the season starts? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, to be quite honest, in, in years past, I've been doing this for 25 years, and the reality is all preseason does, the preseason games, is just justify what you already know. And so I'm hoping that that trend has continued. There's really not been a preseason game where I've gone to and said, God, that guy is now just completely different on the, on the, you know, the game field when the lights are on than what he is on, on the practice field. So um, at the end of the day, our cuts were made based on the, what you do and what you produce at practice. And that's how we've done it for the last, you know, 25 years. And, you know, we, we weren't even able, we, we couldn't do anything but that this year. So I don't believe the preseason games um, are going to be a big deterrent now. You know what? When you when you get to uh, Saskatchewan Friday night and and like I say, thirty thirty five thousand fans are screaming and we haven't done, you know, we haven't been in front of a crowd yet. We'll see how that goes. But so far, you know, I'm I'm excited about the team we've picked, and I don't believe uh, you know the preseason games would have would not have hurt us. Neil Rick Campbell was brought in following the 2019 season, of course, from a different general manager at the time, and then you guys were named both co-general managers as well. From everything that you saw from him in camp and running the team, like everything that was expected when you brought Rick Campbell in? Yeah, to be quite honest, Rick, um, speaking to his football team is, is very, it, it is really, is really good. He, he speaks with those guys and um, they, they listen attentively and he runs a very, a tight practice, you know, maybe not as uh, strict as the, the previous Wally regime, but to be quite honest, mm-hmm. the guys are, are uh, following suit and uh, doing all the things that he's asking. So, you know, dealing with Rick the last two years, I knew it wasn't going to be an issue, and uh, training camp just solidified that for sure. We're speaking with Neil Van McAvoy, co-general manager of the BC Lions, who get underway game one Friday night at Mosaic Field against Saskatchewan. I want to just quickly ask you about the health of Mike Riley. I understand he hasn't practiced in a couple of days, dealing with a bit of a elbow issue. Um, any concerns about his health ahead of the game? I- 
I don't think so. I mean, Mike's going to, you know, like I said, um, Mike got uh, all gung-ho the, the first day of, of camp, just like he would as a baseball player. And so we went through all the protocols to uh, be sure there wasn't uh, anything uh, in his arm that was going to hinder him. So he's on a pitch count. You know, he, he's okay. he's been out there practicing. He's had his helmet on. He's done all the things that's been needed to do. He just hasn't been taking full team reps every single day. But uh, at the end of the day, um, we're going to monitor what he does. And I'm, I expect, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, we get to Friday night and he's our guy and uh, leading us towards uh, great things for 2021. And obviously, if Mike can't go at any point this season, it appears that Nathan Rourke, 2020 draft pick, uh, Canadian quarterback, would be the guy to go from Ohio University. He earned that backup role. So I want to quickly ask you about him because he's still obviously a rookie, even though he was drafted in 2020. But how much did it help him? having the year off and having a year and a half to work on the playbook and like just not come to training camp basically get the playbook and say here you go kid like he got a year and a half to understand it yeah good question and not only that um one of the things that he did and uh, not because we drafted him his parents uh, coincidentally moved to the lower mainland and then he was drafted by us and so he actually moved here as well so not only was uh, he in the playbook with our coaching staff. He was actually in the Lower Mainland working with our, you know, the the, the players that live here year round, um, basically from the, a year ago, from August up until you know today. So um, I have I have high expectations, and I'm excited about seeing um, Nathan Rourke play. I mean, there's there's, you know, I know everyone says he's Canadian, which he is, but at the end of the day, um, when you go to all these workouts that we go to, if Nathan Rourke walked on and did the things and showed you the things that he's, it doesn't matter where he's from. He is a legitimate quarterback that has a bright future, and I'm excited to have him as a BC line because I think he's going to do good things for us. Mike O'Reilly, of course, will be the starter when and, and if healthy, and we know he can be one of the best quarterbacks in the CFL when he's on the field, but you know, the last time we saw Riley taking snaps for the Lions, protection from the offensive line was a major issue. Are you concerned about that being an issue again this season? No, that, that, you know, one of the things that when we sat down to uh, build this football team um, in 2020, even before all the COVID and everything happened, we knew that uh, solidifying the offensive line was going to be key. And so uh, bringing on guys like Riker Matthews, bringing on, you know, get, bringing Joel Figueroa back and having our three Canadian uh, interior guys just be top-notch. And you know what, back, back to what we were saying earlier, the year off has helped guys like Suk Chung and Hunter Stewart and Joel Figueroa, who at the end of the 2019 season had some nagging issues. Well, you know what? They don't have those nagging issues anymore. And so we are, as an offensive line, on full tilt and ready to go. And, uh, you know, when we first sat down, we wanted to get big, rug, and tough tough offensive linemen, guys that, you know what, when you walk into a bar, you want to have your buddies behind you, and there are no rules for you because these guys are going to ready to pound anybody. And that's exactly what we have. So I'm excited about our offensive line to protect whoever's back behind there. Um, Mike's excited about it. Nathan's, Nathan's excited about it. And, the, you know, the last month has just been, you know, that exact thing because everyone's nervous about, you know, is the offensive line going to be good? Our offensive line is going to be fine. And, uh, you know, we're just excited about getting started on Friday. And just quickly on the subject of uh, your quarterback, your starting quarterback again, Neil, you know, how much does it mean? Look, it's obviously it's football. It's always important to have a great performer at quarterback, but specifically this year with so much uncertainty around the team and around the league, 
how much does it mean to have an established star, an established high-level player, and also a leader like Michael Riley as your starting quarterback going into the season? Yeah, at the end of the day, Mike Riley is going to be on our football team, and he's going to be our leader. That, that's, that's regardless of where he is, he is going to be the leader of this football team. And um, I'm, I'm, you know what, he, he's going to be our guy. We're going to be depending on him, and, and, and I'm, I'm, just, I'm excited about him getting on the field Friday to, to do the things that he can do. We're speaking with Neil McAvoy, co-general manager of the BC Lions. I called him Mike. You called him Mike. We have to put it in the swear jar. I apologize, Michael Michael O'Reilly. I know. There's going to be a lot of quarters in that swear jar for me. Um, Sticking with the offense, when you look at your wide receiving core, you've got obviously Brian Burnham, who's a stud in this league, Lamar Durant, Shaq Johnson, Javon Katoy back, but you also made some additions in Lucky Whitehead and Dominic Rimes. What have you seen from the two newbies with this group, plus just the chemistry of the group in general? Okay, and I'll I'll say this, and I don't want to – I'm going to shoot my quarterbacks down a little bit here. You and I – could play on this team and throw the ball to Lucky Whitehead, and we will gain yards. Our receiving core is just so excitable. And, you know, uh, from day one, getting the ball into the hands of guys like Lucky, Lucky Whitehead, um, we have guys like Chris Rainey on our, on our team, and, of course, the Brian Burnhams of the world. Those are top-notch professional athletes, and um, those guys are going to make us just that much better. And, um, you know, Dominic Rimes, Another big thousand-yard receiver in this league. I mean, I'm hoping we have enough balls to get uh, get get into the hands of all these guys. But the addition of Lucky Whitehead is something I'm excited to see because he's just so electric with the ball in his hands. He's so fast, and um, I'm just excited to see these guys perform. So yeah, they're they're a good group, and I'm excited to see them. Switching to the de- defensive side of the ball, um, not a lot of players, if much, with any CFL experience on the defensive line. Um, Neil, what do you hope to see from this young group? You know what? I'm. They're going to shock us. Our defensive line from day one at training camp, they're long, they're tall, they're fast, and they don't know what they're getting into um, You know, going into Saskatchewan. They don't know if there's going to be six people there, 35,000 people there, which they're going to be. So our our defensive line, I'm excited about. They're a young group, who um, you know are are just when you when you look at defensive lines at the professional level, um, you look at our group and you say that's a professional defensive line. And I know we don't know their names yet, or you don't know their names yet. But I, I'm hoping by the end of the year, midway through the year, we all know who they are because they're doing things that we want them to do, and uh, you know all the things we expect them to do. One person I'm really player really excited to see is Jordan Matthews. Um, he was your first overall pick in the 2020 draft. Jordan um, Williams. Uh, sorry, Jordan Williams. Uh, yep. You moved up to take him as well. What have you sh- have you seen from him in practice? And is he someone that's going to be able to step into that middle linebacking role as a rookie? Yeah. Do you know what? Uh, again, a guy that um, you know we had high expectations on, and uh, when he came to training camp, uh, he really. You know, he really did exactly the things you wanted him to do. He's slippery and just, you know, what I like to do, someone taught me when I was younger, is that close your eyes and just listen uh, to, the, to the players that are making plays. And on offense, obviously, guys like Lucky Whitehead and Brian Burnham, they're always making plays. But on defense, um, uh, Jordan Williams was making plays all the time, consistently. Every time he was on the field, he was doing something. And as a, you know, a first-year guy coming into our league, and uh, you know, solidifying that uh, middle spot for us as a Canadian, um, it was just—it was great to see him really step up and not 
well, hopefully we'll have to give them time. There is no time in 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 in, in football. There's 14 games this year. We have to get off the you know out of the starting gate quickly. And uh, guys like Jordan Williams are going to help us do that because he's really been solidified and really good so far. Neil, we all hope that the season goes off without a hitch, that every game is played, that there are no issues surrounding COVID. But, you know, we also expect that that could happen at some point throughout the season. And the league announced yesterday their potential penalties and their procedures for dealing with COVID. And it could include teams having to forfeit games, players forfeiting salary. What are the conversations that you and the coaching staff had with the players about COVID, about taking certain precautions. What have those conversations been like through training? Yeah, camp? you know what, the conversations have been um, different today than what they were um, at the beginning of training camp. At the beginning of training camp, um, you know, you had a lot of uh, young men from the United States that were a little bit nervous about what COVID was and maybe didn't get all the information. So we had a bunch of Zoom meetings and a bunch of uh, in, you know, in calls and, and meetings with our players who uh, were not vaccinated. And uh, we, to be quite frank, got a lot of them vaccinated while they were in Kamloops. And so um, that, that's one of the beauties of being Canadian and then the Canadian Football League is that, you know, our medical system helps everybody out. And that's, you know what, um, so our conversations were to just let's get vaccinated. Let's get as many people vaccinated as possible so we don't have to deal with these uh, possible issues. And that's still the conversations we're having today, but it's a lot less because there's a lot less guys that uh, need to go through that process. Hey, Neil, thank you so much for joining us today. I know you've got a pretty busy slate, so thanks for taking some time out and talk a little football. I'm looking forward for the season to start. I'm actually a little a little choked I'm not here. I'm actually away in Manitoba when you guys play your home game because I would have oh. been there in the stands, pain fan, to see that, but I promise I'll be there second game. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you very much for having me, and uh, go Lions, guys. Awesome. Thanks, Neil. That's Neil McAvoy, co-general manager of the BC Lions. He's a really good guy. Uh, Jamie, I don't know if you know him very well, but uh, traveling with the team, getting to know him, he's a great guy. Um, very. I just want to say, very cool yeah. um, to hear at the end there that they've had so much success, in particular with a mayor, uh, with players coming from south of the border. As we know, there, you know, there can be a lot of misinformation, a yes. lot of kind of odd arguments about the vaccine and COVID in the United States. And I was really impressed and really proud to hear that, honestly, from Neil McAvoy that. They were able to sit down with their players, you know, face to face or on Zoom, whatever the case may be, and and have those conversations and have a lot of success getting people vaccinated, helping to keep people safe. You know, it it obviously I think it makes perfect sense on a personal level, but you look at it from a team perspective as well. You know, you got to do those things to make sure your team is not going to be a position where they're forfeiting games or where your teammates are forfeiting salary. So good for the Lions, good for Neil McAvoy. And I, I was really impressed to hear that at the end. Yeah, me as me as well, and I. It made me think because the CFL did come up with that story yesterday, saying or the protocols yesterday, saying yes, if your team is not eighty five percent vaccinated, and you have a COVID outbreak and can't play the game, then you forfeit the game. Like there's that eighty five percent threshold that they're talking about, and so it leads me to believe that teams still need to get there, obviously, yeah. right? Like they're putting that incentive out there, so it's pretty obvious to read the read between the lines in that one, but it does sound good. Like the lions were and the players coming into camp were pretty open about it because like you mentioned misinformation and all you want to do is give these players and any individual, the information that you have about that they can make the decision right for them. Right. And whether the people decide to make the decision for them or for others, it doesn't really matter. But as long as you give them the information that they deserve, they should have. I think that's a key thing. And I think I'm really proud that the CFL and the BC lions and hopefully other teams have done that. Um, you mentioned the offensive line. 
<laughs> Jamie with the BC Lions. 50-some-odd sacks for Mike Riley two years Ooh. ago. Uh, he probably needed that year and a half off to recover. I know he had a back issue 2019 as well, not to mention the broken wrist. I do think if they are healthy, they could be one of the best offensive lines in the CFL. Uh, Neil mentioned Suk Chung, right guard. He came in from Winnipeg in, just before the 2019 season. Very high expectations for Suk. He's a local boy coming home and the fact that he was coming off an all-star season with Winnipeg the year before. We saw what Andrew Harris did behind that offensive line in Winnipeg. So high expectations and he was injured throughout the year and I know he just didn't perform at the level that he wanted to. So he obviously has a Prove me season. Riker Matthews, an offensive line East All-Star, came in from Hamilton prior to the 2020 season. He's with them too. And Joel Figueroa, left tackle. He is the best, if not one of the best in the CFL. So if they can stay healthy, and I mean, that's the key, and there's always going to be injuries throughout the season, but if they can stay healthy, I have a feeling that Mike Riley will stand upright this season. Well, and that offensive line, it sounds like, is going to be the key to the offense for the Lions, right? Because oh. we know what Michael Riley can do in the CFL. He can be extremely effective. He can be the best quarterback in the league when he's at his best. And you heard what Neil McAvoy had to say about the receiving court, right? It's mm-hmm. got established veterans like Brian Burnham, Lamar Durant, who have been around. Then, as you say, you know, they go in and bring Lucky Whitehead. And you hear about how incredibly dynamic he has been at training camp. That's a really stacked group, right? So all of a sudden you take the quarterback, you take the skill position talent around him. Mm-hmm. If that offensive line holds up its end of the bargain, it should be a very explosive offense for the lines. Absolutely. And when it comes to Lucky Whitehead, I was talking to someone who's uh, been at practice the last couple of days and said, like, this is not a guy that you just have out there returning footballs or can run the jet sweep. Like, this is a guy that's a really good route runner as well. So it gives the Lions something that they haven't had in the past. You can put him in the slot. Probably not wide up, but you probably put him in the slot, give him that running start, uh, Jamie, and he can run some pretty dynamic routes. So that'll be a great weapon to have for Mike Riley. The question still is with that defensive line, and I brought it up with Neil. They had to go younger. They just had to. They had too many aging veterans on their team in the 2019 season. So the fact that they are young could be good for them. But, you know, without a preseason games, the coaches have made these decisions based on the fact of what they've seen in camp. And they'll find out pretty quickly if those those decisions were correct or not. Yeah, that's, um, you know, and look, the general manager on the eve of the season, he's going to be positive about something like that. I, I understand yes. that, but... It's still a major bet when you're that thin on experience at a key position like defensive line. Because, you know, the flip side of what we're talking about with the offensive line, right, is, you know, pressure can make any quarterback look bad. Well, if you're never getting home on the opposing quarterback, you're going to make a lot of quarterbacks look good, right? So you need to have that element up front that can win, that can get home to the quarterback. And I don't know. I mean, just, you know as we're talking here, this could be, we could be in for a lot of high scoring lions games, right? If their offense clicks, like we think it can possibly that the defensive line struggles a little bit. It could be a lot of fireworks at lions games this year. Four, I believe thousand yard receiving years for Brian Burnham previous to the not playing last season. He's one of my favorite players to interview. I actually got him to cry on air. That was my highlight of my career. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, He's one of also the nicest guys that you'll ever interview. So uh, we'll see what he can do. Also just want to make a note, Bo Lacumbo back where he started his CFL career. Of course, he started with the Lions, went to the Owls. He is going to start, I believe, at weeks. I'm not sure where he's going to start, but we'll just, uh, he'll be back on the field for the Lions. Friday night, Mosaic Field against the Riders. Let's go. And when they come back here in two weeks, let's get some butts in the stands. Let's go watch the game because, Jamie, like we said, what's the model? It's something to watch.
Yeah, something to watch. Something, an event to go to with, with your family, with your friends. There have been a lot of those, but this is one. And it should be a good time, too. Uh, don't forget about that. Okay. Coming up next, we're going to hear, we're going to get a little Jay's talk here from John Barossi with the MLB Network. Jamie, I'm going to um, test your knowledge on the Blue Jays, okay? I'm going to test All your All right, I'm excited. Because my baseball watching, as much as I am a Jays fan, it's kind of veered to the Olympics lately. So I'm going to test your knowledge. And then at the top of the hour, we're going to talk a little Canucks. Dan Murphy with Sportsnet will join us. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon on Sportsnet 650. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. I like this song, too. Rintel and Sermon, Karen Sermon, Scott Rintel on vacation, Jamie Dodd fill in for the next few weeks, except maybe a day or two here on Friday and next Monday. But Jamie, I thank you again for doing this. A little baseball talk coming up. All right. Did you you watch the game on last Friday when the Jays were their first game back home at Rogers Arena? Yes. Yes, I did. it was, it's one of the few games that I've caught since the Olympics started because my focus has been on that, but it was something spectacular. Like, it was like opening day again. It was great. It was uh, emotional. I mean, they won, which was fantastic. It was, it was everything I think people in Toronto and Jays fans really across the country wanted it to be, which was just a, a positive celebration, joyful moment. I think it helped that they were playing the Kansas City Royals to start yep. their homestand. But hey, you got to only play who's on your schedule, right? It just happened to be Kansas City Royals. Um, but we're moving this segment around a little bit. Today's been kind of busy, Jamie. We've had a lot of listener engagement. So what they're saying, we usually do it at uh, 1030. We're going to do it right now. Greg, let's do what they're saying. And speaking of the Toronto Blue Jays, MLB Network's John Morosi was on the Fan 590 this morning. And he was talking about what the Jays did at the trade deadline. Have a listen have to give them a lot of credit and listen they they were aggressive I, I like the fact that they they went in for some rental pieces as well i think it was important obviously that barrios is under control for next year as well and hopefully that allows the jays to have the opportunity to sign him long term and and i i believe there's a decent chance that happens this winter time at some point but i i really love just the timing of everything scotty because of course as we know the jays come back to toronto on friday and same day as the Barrios trade, same day as uh, obviously the Brad Hand news becomes official. And, and there's just a lot of momentum there. So, Jamie, before I just get into the Blue Jays, every single team made a trade on deadline day or the day before trade deadline day. Ten All-Stars from the current season have already been relocated. Twenty-three past or present All-Stars were traded during deadline week and a record 15 exchanged on deadline day alone. And, of course, you can look to the Chicago Cubs players that have been traded. They are thriving with their new teams. Of course, the Cubs and the Nationals just, you have to kind of figure out who's on their team right now. But I digress. Blue Jays, what have you thought about what they did at the deadline and what do you think was maybe one of the biggest acquisitions by them? Well, I mean, the big acquisition is, is obviously Jose Barrios, right? The starting mm-hmm. pitcher. Yes, the conversation throughout the season has more often been about their bullpen than their starting pitchers, but they still had a need in the rotation, and they go out and fill it with a really, really talented pitcher. The key, as you heard from Morosi there, is you know not only does he have a year of control left, so he's not a free agent after this season. They'll have him for next year when you know the team figures to be, once again, very competitive. That's a huge deal. And then I, I'm really heartened to hear the you know early suggestions that they might even be interested in extending Jose Barrios, right? Because mm-hmm. then he can be a part of your long-term plans. And then 
you know, the idea that you had to pay a fairly steep price to get him uh, with Simeon Woods Richardson and Austin Martin going the other way, that becomes a lot easier to stomach. So Barrios was a massive addition. And, you know, I brought it up with Tim McAuliffe earlier in the show, just the fact that they were willing to go and trade a top highly touted prospect like Austin Martin that a lot of fans were really excited about. That was really important to me because it shows how serious they are about making this team competitive and keeping it in the race. Now, it also helps that, you know, Austin Martin's a shortstop. They already have Bo Bichette playing shortstop at the major league level. Mm -hmm. Plus, they have a whole bunch of other shortstop prospects uh, in the minor league system right now. One, actually, who just got promoted to the Vancouver Canadiens. So they're not playing in Vancouver right now. (laughs) But hopefully by the end of the summer, we'll have a chance to see uh, Aurelvis Martinez, you know, a hotshot shortstop prospect in his own right at Nat Bailey Stadium. So that does make it easier. But still, it takes guts to make a trade like this. And Mm -hmm. it's a massive deal for the Jays. He's going to be really good for them, I think. I I like Berrios a lot. And more than that, I just like the aggressiveness from the Jays' front office. Yeah, we were having this conversation a couple weeks back, I think before vacation, about the when is it time, right? Like, when is it time to not necessarily sell the farm, but to make that next step and to trade away some prospects and do you sell the farm at some point and how much do you have to show these players that you're in? When I heard the prospects that were given away, I was a little mm, about it because, you know, Austin Martin, one of the top prospects in the system, but to bring in a player like Barrios and I can't say it with a Spanish accent, I'm sorry. Um, (laughs) And... But to show these young kids, like, they've done well enough, and I think that the team understood the difficulties that they had been in this season. The fact they'd played two different home ballparks, and they were getting back to Toronto. And I think that was key. As soon as they found out they were getting back to Toronto in front of some fans and understood that if we can use this now as an actual home court, home field advantage and make a run, I think that that's when management said, okay, this is time to reward these kids for what they've done so far. Yeah, and again, it's I think they were able to do it in a way – that doesn't mortgage the future because there is a chance that Barrio sticks around, not just for next season when he's already in under team control, but for the long term. So there was some initial kind of sticker shock, I think, when fans heard that, oh, man, Austin Martin is included in this mm-hmm. deal. And it, it's actually funny because uh, on Friday when the trade deadline, you know, just a few hours before the trade deadline, Bick and I were doing the show together and we had Scott MacArthur from the Toronto from Toronto Fan 590, obviously a massive Blue Jays guy has covered the team for a long time we had Mm -hmm. him on the station just as the deal was breaking and you know we kind of got his initial reaction and he said you know I really like this deal because you know they're probably not going to have to give up a top prospect like Austin Martin and then you know (laughs) literally seconds after he said that the news came in that in fact Austin Martin was uh part of the deal and he kind of had to take a step back and say oh wow then this is a sign that they're really really serious right and Mm -hmm. you're exactly right it's important to demonstrate that to the players you have because even think about it how how much longer before they might want to talk you know long-term deal long-term extension with vladdy with bo bichette right and now you have the credibility to say we are serious about making this team a winner and I mean, it sounds cliche, but prospects are only prospects until they're not. Like, you have no idea yep. what these players could do when they come up to the majors. I don't wish ill will on any of them or Austin Martin. I hope he has a very long, fabulous career um, in the Major League Baseball. But you have no idea what he's going to be as a Major League player. Now, I want to go back to another clip from MLB Network's John Morosi on the Fan 590 again because he talked about the chances of the Jays making the playoffs. We have to give them a lot of credit. And listen, they, they were aggressive. Now, do I think the Jays... 
will will make the playoffs. Well, still there's there's a lot of work to be done there. Uh, you look at their in division record, and it's still under 500. They have to play better. I think the the weekend series coming up against Boston is going to be a really crucial one, and it's one that when you look at things. They should not be thinking, hey, let's let's try to split this in, in four games. They have to win the series. You have to start winning series against quality teams because I don't see the Jays making the playoffs with a sub-500 record in their own division. They're going to play too many games down the stretch against the Rays and the Yankees and the Red Sox. They've got to correct that record. They have to get on the right side of 500, and it's got to start this weekend against a Red Sox team that uh, I will say you're welcome for the for the, the Tigers' win over the Red Sox last night, and, and they, they're reeling right now. So this is, this is the right time to play Boston, and, and the Jays have to capitalize if they really want to solidify their position as a playoff team here in 2021. So, Jamie, just running through some numbers. Since returning to the Rogers Center, 4-1, and one, they had that three-game sweep of the Royals, a uh, team they should beat. They've split the first two with Cleveland. They have two more left. Then they have that set against the Red Sox that uh, John just mentioned. Boston has currently lost five in a row. They've dropped down to second in the East now behind Tampa Bay. Toronto fourth in the East, seven games back in the divisions, three games back in the wild card for the second wild card sport, spot. rather. Seattle and Yankees are ahead of them. They have 25 home games left as well. And he was mentioning the games left against the Red Sox. Red Sox, the Rays, and the Yankees. Only four these four games left against the Red Sox. Then they're done with them. So it, I think it's key to get, obviously, a good series out of that. Tampa Bay, six games left. Yankees, seven. Baltimore, ten. That's kind of nice down the stretch. They also close the season against Baltimore. And three games next week against Seattle. So they have the ability to beat some of these teams ahead of them to give them that advantage for the wild card spot. Yeah, and, you know, the flip side of, okay, yes, you only have so many games left against the Red Sox, for example, but that also means, you know, you don't have to play a pretty good team that many times, so that helps your strength of schedule. And you, you look at the AL East, okay, there's seven games back of Tampa. Tampa's a really good team. You know, they would have to jump over not just the Tampa Bay Rays, but also the Yankees and the Red Sox to win the AL East. That's a very tall order. It's not out of the question. You know, it's not insurmountable, but that's a very tall order. But... When you turn to the wild card, they're three games out of the second wild card spot right now, and they have by far, by far, the best run differential of any of the teams in the mix, right? So they're mm-hmm. only one game behind the Mariners, one game behind the Yankees. It would be, to me, a, a massive disappointment if they don't finish ahead of the standings of at least those two teams. And then I look at Oakland and I say, yeah, you should be tracking that team down as well. Really, you're you're good enough that you should be able to make up those three games over the final two months of the season. Now, look, it's baseball. Lots of funny things can happen. But this team, it has the starting pitching. It has the start. It has the hitting up and down the lineup to go on a legitimate run at some point. So the AL East, that's a very, very tall order. But yeah, mm-hmm. it is a very realistic expectation and realistic hope that they are able to close out and get that second wildcard spot at least. Well, and I think that's one of the things why they did were so aggressive as well. I talk about the fact that showing these young guys like, yeah, we're going in, we're going to support you to make a run. But I think the management looked at it and said, okay, we're only a few games out in the wildcard race. There's teams that are gettable ahead of us. Um, teams that we have games against ahead of us. So why not go out and get this? And once you get in, I understand the wild card. It's a one game and anything could happen. But once you get in, anything could happen. Look at the Montreal Canadiens. Oh, of course. No, that, go for the wild card game. Yeah, I know it's only one game, and that's why maybe you don't you don't want to trade all of your, you know, you don't want to trade your top five prospects just to take a shot 
at the wildcard game, but it's still important. It's still fun for the fans. It's still a good experience for your players. And as yeah, you can you can easily say, well, it's one game. You can be out after one game. Yeah, or you could win that game and then go on to the World Series after that, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it, just because it's a coin flip, it doesn't mean it's always going to go poorly for you. So I think there's absolutely value in chasing that wild card spot down. Not to mention a pennant race or a wild card race down the stretch means more revenue yep. for the team because more butts in seats at Rogers Arena. Okay, and, it's time and for more, taking more the- revenue for us, Karen. More revenue yeah. for Rogers, baby. Let's go. That's all I'm about. The parent company and money for us, Jamie. What, what it means for us down the stretch. Okay, let's, let's uh, I was going to say let's play. Let's do take the L. Okay, Freddie, just before we get to yours, Jamie, I just want to say, and I know you just responded in the inbox, Freddie from North, North um, Vancouver or North W, North Westminster, I guess it is. He says, is 650 aware that the Olympics are on? Every time I listen, it's Canucks, Blue Jays, and NFL. Can- Canadian just won Olympics in the 200 meters first time in almost 100 years. Jamie, go back, li- uh, Freddie, go back, listen to the podcast. Jamie and I spent a ton of time in the first segment of the show, the nine o'clock hour, and then again in the 10 o'clock hour. So I promise you there has been a ton of Olympic talk on our station. Yeah, and uh, podcast is going to be up shortly if you want to go back and exactly. listen to it. Don't worry, we have given plenty and plenty of acknowledgement and we will to Andre still. de Grasse, an, inc- an incredible accomplishment by him. Exactly, and we still will as the show goes on. Okay, Jamie, I'm going to give you the honors first. Who needs to take the L for you? All right, so I got into this a little bit when we just after we talked to Neil McAvoy uh, of the BC Lions, and you know, I said how impressed I was that the team has has put in the work and been able to help convince a lot of players to get vaccinated, right? And yeah. whether it's the players doing it for their own personal health and safety, for the health and safety of their loved ones, or just to protect the team in the case that there is a COVID outbreak, that they, they get above that 85% threshold and they avoid some of the stiff penalties, you know, whatever the case is, it's just good that more people are getting vaccinated. So I was really impressed. There's a similar situation that is playing out in not such a positive way in the NFL. Now, the NFL, to be fair, has made a lot of strides with its players as a whole. They've gotten that overall number up a lot in recent weeks. But Kirk Cousins in Minnesota is not one of those players. And Kirk Cousins needs Hmm. to take the L. He is unvaccinated. Mm -hmm. He has made some kind of odd comments about COVID-19 in the past. I believe the quote was something like, if I die, I die at a certain point. So kind of a weird stance to take on it from Kirk Cousins. But not only is he on the reserve COVID-19 list this week, but also two of the other quarterbacks in Minnesota Vikings camp, Kellen Mond, Nate Stanley as well. Now, as we often know, right, if these guys are sharing a room, sharing uh, practice space, they're close contacts. So those guys have to go on the COVID list as well. I don't know. We don't know the exact details, but it's not a good look. They're short on quarterbacks in the second week of training camp, not where you want your team to be. And full credit to Vikings head coach Mike Zimmer for basically yeah. coming right out, calling out his quarterback, saying, this is ridiculous. We don't have to deal with this. If everyone would just get vaccinated, we could move on and be done with this. Kirk Cousins needs to take the L, not just because he's hurting his team at training camp. But here's the thing. You're Kirk Cousins. It's not as if you're this superstar, all-pro, MVP-caliber quarterback. This would still be stupid if you were Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady or Patrick Mahomes. It would still be a really bad look. But you're Kirk Cousins. You're mediocre. You're not even that good at your position. And you think you can put yourself above the team like this? You think you can put the team at risk? You are Kirk Cousins. They can go out and find another Kirk Cousins. It's ridiculous that he thinks he is above his team. He is putting them at danger. He's putting them at risk of losing games, of having to forfeit games, of potentially forfeiting salary. 
and he's mm-hmm. not even that good a quarterback. Kirk Cousins needs to take the L. Bravo, Jamie. I like it. I like your enthusiasm, and you're absolutely correct. Are you by chance a Minnesota Vikings fan? I am not, but I, okay. I know I Minnesota sure. Vikings yeah. fans, and I know what they think of Kirk Cousins. Okay. We we should have, we really should have had uh, Arash uh, Arash Madani on the show this week because yeah. he, he he would have some things to say about Kirk Cousins. That's for sure. We've still got time to do that. We can maybe have him on tour. <laughs> you got, you can uh, sh- we can get his uh, opinion on that. Here's what I you're talking about, Mike Zimmer, and he's been outspoken from day one. He's like, yeah. Guys, like, come on, you're like hurting the team. And not only that, he's been very outspoken. This is his words and not mine. It's it's your health as well and the health of others around you. And not to mention putting you in a negative position that could cost you play che- like paychecks and losses on the schedule, which could be very costly in the grand scheme of things of positioning. But he's just been saying, like, do the research, health and safety. And again, his remarks, not mine. He also had a really funny to start the, his uh, press conference or he talked to the media earlier uh, this week. I think he talked to him early before uh, practice started. And he says, because the guys that don't have vaccines have to wait in the parking lot and get tested every day. Right. And they have to prove a negative test to get in to the practice facility. So they're standing out there waiting. And he goes to the media. He goes, go stand in the parking lot. Look at those guys out there. Basically publicly shaming them as these are the ones that don't have the vaccines. You can take a look. Here you are. These guys are the ones hurting his teams. I I respect him for stand for speaking out on this because not a lot of coaches would have. I don't want to say the guts or the gall, but I don't know anybody else that is outspoken as he has been on this situation. Well, it's it's not easy to go out there and call your store call out your starting quarterback yes. in the middle of training camp, right? That's not easy to do. So I agree. Full credit to Mike Zimmer for being consistent, for being very clear and very strong on this issue. Marcus and Gibbons. I'm a Vikings fan. I hate Cousins. He's a plug. Get Rodgers in Minnesota already. Well, you might have to wait one more season for that, and I don't know if that would happen. Philip Rivers, Philip Rivers is available, though. He played pretty well last season. Yeah. You never know. I think a bunch of teams might be calling him. He, however, may be doing too much parenting at this time. My take, the L, is the rest of the Bundesliga. Have you seen this picture, Jamie, that is floating around right now on social media? It's, if anyone wants to see it, ESPN FC, at ESPN FC on Twitter. I liked it uh, on my Twitter account, Karen underscore Sermon. Alfonso Davies is back from his injury, and he's training with um, Bayern Munich. Jogged for the first time yesterday, I believed. But, Jamie, um, Alfonso was hit in the weight room while he was yep. injured. Dude he is, is jacked. Now. It looks like... The Incredible Hulk, almost. <laughs> he has been putting in the time in the weight room. We all know the incredible rookie season that he had, or breakout season that he had a couple of years ago, 2019, 2020. Of course, 2020 was a weird season, but still, they ended up winning the Bundesliga, and he's just championships all over the place. He did tear him ligament in his muscle, so he couldn't play for Canada in the Gold Cup, which is disappointing. Um, but I have a feeling he's on a mission this season. If you haven't seen it, again, go to at ESPN FC. Alfonso Davies looks like he's a man that's not going to take any prisoners this season in the Bundesliga. He looks like he's going to hit another level physically. And we forget about how young he is, right? So he's still in that stage of his athletic career where his body is developing. And he is Mm -hmm. getting rapidly, rapidly stronger. The the funny thing about it is, you know, I remember watching Alfonso Davies when he was just breaking in with the Whitecaps, you know, 15, 16. Yeah. And he was already 
just as strong as the yes. grown men he was going up against in MLS, right? And he didn't have the muscles then, but he was wiry. He was extremely strong. Yep. You know, he could go into challenges and more than hold his own. Hold, hold his own. So strength was already a major component of his game. And I mean, now if the pictures are to be believed, you combine his pace and that kind of strength, he is going right. to be one of the most just physically imposing, physically impressive players in European football. I think it's good to know that he's back training uh, from that LCL tear in his ankle as well because, yes, the Bundesliga starts on August 13th. Uh, Bayern Munich plays their first match against Borussia Mönchengladbach. I think I said that correctly. That's a mouthful. Uh, but the key one here, Jamie, September 2nd. That is when the final round of World Cup qualifying starts when they face Honduras. So to have Alfonso Davies ramping up his training, getting back on the pitch, running, looking like the stud he looks like, I mean, it's only good things if he can get back on that pitch for that game um, September 2nd against Honduras. Because, I mean, this is the Gold Cup was a Gold Cup. I understand it. And right. it sucks the way that Canada lost against Mexico and everything that went, went with that match. Um, but this, it's all about finishing in top three in the World Cup. Qualifying, I should say. Like, that's yep. what Canada needs to do. We talked about expectations of this, of our country overall. Basketball, the disappointment of not getting to the Olympics, the disappointment of our Canadian women's team at the Olympics. Then we look at their Canadian women's team playing for gold, and you could argue that the gold medal in women's soccer specifically is a lot more difficult than even the World Cup because the competition is that much stronger in the, in the Olympics. Like, there's only 12 teams, right? Versus right. the World Cup, which is 24. So you're going to get some easier competition. When you look at the men, though, the Olympics is different. It's only under 23, so we're not sending our best competitors there. So the World Cup is the gold standard. And for them to be able to qualify, like we need Alfonso Davies on the pitch for Canadian soccer. Yeah, we absolutely do. I mean, it was awesome to see Canada, you know, a shorthanded Canada put in such a good effort against Mexico. But to have a shot over the full, you know, qualification process in CONCACAF, they need their best players to be available. And obviously, Alfonso Davies is their best player. We're getting called out about talking about Olympics. People haven't been listening to us for the last two days, Jamie. It's all we've been doing for the last yeah, two days. Yeah, it's been a lot of apparently, Olympics Apparently, you guys don't have the knowledge about Olympic sports. It's that simple. Hey, you do you, buddy. You do you. Um, I've enjoyed it. We've talked about it. Andre DeGrasse, we're going to throw some... Um, we're going to talk about him again in the bottom of the hour. But in the top of the hour, yes, we are going to talk about some Canucks. Because, Jamie, you and I don't get to talk a lot about Canucks right now on the station. We're going to be joined by Sportsnet's Dan Murphy. What's going on with Petey and Huggy Bear's contracts, Jamie? Are they going to get signed anytime soon, you think? Let's find out. I don't know. Let's ask Murph we'll about ask Murph. it. We'll ask Murph about it. That's coming up next on Sportsnet 650. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. It is Rintoul and Sermon. Scott Rintoul on vacation for a while. Jamie Dodd in the hosting chair. Jamie, we're getting called out for not talking about um, the Olympics too much. I'm currently watching Synchronized Swimming, which I'm sure this listener was really hoping we'd talk about. Um, <laughs> have you ever watched the sport at all? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're phenomenal what they can do. I'm watching these girls right now. They have this. I want to hear what the music is because obviously it's a very vicious something that they are because they look. They have, like, this really angry look on their face, not to mention the talent in the water. But just a quick story before we get to Dan Murphy. Um, <laughs> so when you go underwater, do you have to plug your nose? No, I do not. Okay. And that sounds weird to you, right? Like, I would ask that uh, question? Well, no. I mean, I know okay. nose plugs exist out there and people do right. it, but I, I don't do it. 
So I never used to as well. And I grew up swimming. I was a fish in the water. You know, grew up with a cabin on the lake and going to swimming classes and all that kind of stuff. And then my mom, um, oh, I hope she's not listening. Uh, she tried to put me in some, you know, more sports geared toward girls because I played basketball okay. and soccer. Sure. So figure skating, you know, um, she did synchronized swimming. But you had to wear a nose plug for synchronized swimming. It screwed me for life. I don't know how to, like, I can dive underwater because, you know, you're kind of going against it and I don't have to nose plug, but I just can't right. go up and go down because I don't know what you're supposed to do. I get water up my nose every time. So I'm screwed for life. I can't I have to plug my nose every time I go into the water. So do you have a, a grudge against the sport of synchronized swimming now for this, for no, doing this ag- to you? Against my mother. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Mom. I love you. No, hey, this don't. is a safe space, Karen. Let it out. Let it out. You can un- unload all the issues you have right now here with, with your mom. It does suck, though, if you can't do that anymore. If you can't just... Because what you're supposed to breathe out, right? But it seems so counterintuitive to do that because normally it's just plugged. There's no water going in. Anyways, I digress. I, I got to um, ask, though. I mean, how, mm-hmm. how long was your synchronized swimming career? About four weeks. <laughs> All right. So you're not you're not a synchronized swimming expert then. You're not gonna come no. on and break down the routines for us. <laughs> no, sorry, excuse me. Um she also put me in gymnastics, which I which I wanted to go in, but what I learned at a very young age, I'm very inflexible. Like I can't touch All my right. toes now. As a kid yeah. couldn't do it. So to put me anything in anything artistic like gymnastics and synchronized swimming stuff like that i just don't have the ability to do it so uh no it didn't last very long i kept going back to basketball and soccer and very happy that i did vancouver canucks are in the offseason obviously jamie they were very busy at the free agency you were working it last week well i was following it on social media 17 free agent players the team signed they reconstructed their blue line they got a backup veteran goaltender but there's one two i guess question marks that still remain for this team the contracts for this upcoming season for elias patterson and quinn hughes yeah, I mean, that's really, you know, you could throw RFA Jason Dickinson, who they acquired uh, just before the expansion draft. Obviously, he's much a much less important piece than those two, still an RFA. But yeah, I mean, those contracts and really for Pedersen and Hughes, those are the, that's the last piece of business that the Canucks yeah. have to get done in this summer. They were extremely busy over a period of about four or five days there, you know, with the trade from Arizona and then on free agency. And, and now it's just those two, two major deals that need, still need to get done. So before we get to Dan Murphy from Sportsnet to talk more about this, uh, Dave Paniato was on from the fourth period was on with the NHL Network, and he was actually talking about these contract negotiations. Uh, it sounds like there's been slight progress made so far between getting both of these guys signed. Now it's you know different situations for both of them because Quinn Hughes is a 10.2 seat restricted free agent, which means no other team can submit an offer sheet and try to lure him out of Vancouver. Elias Pettersson, he's not part of that. He could be, uh, uh, you know, susceptible effectively to an offer sheet from another club. So there's different uh, ways in trying to go about this. If you're talking about urgency, Elias Pettersson more so than Quinn Hughes, but, you know, they, they switched agents, or Elias Pettersson actually switched agents. They both have the same in Pat Brazil and CAA. They'd like to make this work together, but it sounds like you're probably looking at a shorter-term bridge deal for both of these guys. The way that they're performing, the way that the cap situation is structured in Vancouver, that might be the best way to go. And it looks like Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes could still work together and try to get something done. But the urgency is more on Pettersson's side than Hughes because, again, Hughes, there's really no risk. It's either signing the NHL or 
take your chances overseas. And that's something that he, to my understanding, definitely doesn't want to do. Well, that would be a nightmare of the situation, Jamie, if that was to happen. Um, let's bring on Dan Murphy from Sportsnet right now. Dan, before we get into the whole Canucks conversation, how's your summer been? How's the golf game? How's playing with Shorty? Uh, it's been, the summer's been great. I mean, I've kind of checked out. Um, I forgot <laughs> even that Pedersen and Hughes needed contracts, to be honest. But, uh, <laughs> well, let's talk about um, something else then. <laughs> no, the golf game is shoddy at best, and then... Uh, played with Nick Taylor on Saturday and that makes you feel even worse uh, we set the over under at 15 and we pushed because he shot 62 and I shot 77 so um, yeah it's been fun played with Shorty quite a bit uh, playing with him tomorrow and then I leave on Friday for Toronto for play-by-play for what's it called the National Bank Open presented by Rogers now it's no longer the Rogers Cup but yeah going to do some work actually leaving Friday awesome. for tennis that's awesome. Like, is this, yeah. um, you do, yeah, you do this almost every year, obviously not last year because of the pandemic, but yeah. this is, this is one of the gigs you do. Um, talking about Nick Taylor, how is he feeling about, uh, not to, you know, private conversations on the course, but how is he feeling about <laughs> his game right now? Um, I think he, he would like to have some better results on the weekends. He's made some cuts, but hasn't, his Saturday scoring average hasn't been great. Now he's, you know, clearly wants to make the playoffs this year. I think he's 147 right now, and you have to be 125 or under to make the playoffs, uh, which is a pretty good cash grab. So he's got some work to do. But uh, because he won Pebble Beach uh, in 2019 uh, with the pandemic, that got extended a year. So he still has full status next season no matter what, even if he misses uh, the playoffs. But uh, certainly he's had some good Thursdays and Fridays, but his weekends have to be better. he tell you that. Mm-hmm. Have you been keeping up with the Olympics much, Murph, during your summer? I have. I got up this morning, and on my phone, I watched uh, the grass run. Um, I hope, uh, for our sake, that the soccer game uh, doesn't change times tomorrow because it's something <laughs> I'd love to watch with my daughter. Um, but I understand the, the concerns of the athletes, and I just have to go first. Uh, but, yeah, I've watched quite a bit. It's been on every night at our house. Um, and my wife's a huge fan of the Olympics. I was chuckling because I think it was like, first night we were watching and it was skateboarding and someone tweeted right. something like i i told myself i wasn't going to watch the olympics this year and here i am at one in the morning cheering <laughs> for a guy named kevin in the kayak or something like that so <laughs> I, it, get, it gets me every time too i i get sucked into the stories of the of the athletes and you know you get invested in them when they show those good little features and then you want to see how they do so uh i most of my TV watching is live sports. It takes me forever to get through any sort of Netflix show. Uh, so, yeah, I'm all on board with the Olympics. So we've been having the talk all week here on the show. You know, is there is there a sport this time around for you at the Olympics that's, you know, usually pretty far off the radar, pretty obscure, that you found yourself drawn to? Or, or is there a sport, you know, every four years, you know, okay, that I'm going to be watching that when the Olympics come up, even though I would never pay attention to it uh, throughout the rest of the years? Well, I mean, skateboarding's one. I, I don't understand the tricks, but when they show it uh, in slow motion, you can just tell how skilled the, you know, most of these kids are, really, right? Um, so I, I really enjoyed that at the start. Uh, I wish in golf they would make it a team format. Now, I know not every country has two athletes, uh, but I just think it would make it better if it was actually like a, a team event, like two people per country, and if the U.S. has to have two teams, and great. Or make two rounds of stroke play and then make it match play for the top 16. I just want something different than the regular format. Um, but yeah, no, I, I like, I love the track events. 
I love the swimming events, but I, I don't necessarily watch them in the World Championships. So I guess mm-hmm. uh, I'm a once every four or five years, this in this instance, uh, a fan. Uh, but I, I certainly I do like watching those sports when it's Olympic time. Did you get up at uh, 5.55 this morning to watch Andre de Grasse? I, like, I'm a terrible sleeper, uh, so I was <sighs> up. I watched it on my phone as not to uh, wake up the whole household. Uh, so I did nice. watch it live. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was fantastic. I mean, I just... That's an incl- you're an athlete uh, in any sport, but to to win one of the sprints, I think has to feel, you know, I'm going to say I'm the fastest person in the world, uh, you know, in 200 meters would be a pretty cool thing to say. And so I was certainly rooting hard for him. I thought it was an incredible performance. Okay, let's get into a little Canucks talk. We're speaking with Dan Murphy from Sportsnet. Uh, got a lot of stuff done at the free agency uh portion of the offseason, yeah. uh, Dan. But the two questions, well, there's three question marks to go, obviously Jason Dickinson and arbitration, but the two quick question marks going in are Elias Pettersson's contract and Quinn Hughes' contract. And I remember last week hearing um, their agent on, I believe it was Donnie and Dollywell, and he had said, well, it kind of got pushed to the back burner a bit because they were dealing with all these free agencies, not just the Canucks, but the agents as well. Now that it's kind of a week after the fact, do you think something's going to get done signed? How do you think this is going to progress as we, what, I guess, six weeks away from uh, training camp? Yeah, I certainly think that the Pedersen one is likely to get done sooner because really the only leverage Hughes has is to threaten to hold out a little bit. And a lot of times these contracts, remember Brock Besser, right? A lot of times people in this situation, um, I don't even know what it is, a 10-2C, I can't remember what the free agent is, but he doesn't have our mm-hmm. rights. Um, so, like, usually players in this situation miss a little bit of camp, right? If they, if they hold out a little bit, that's how they have their leverage. Um, so I would expect maybe Hughes could take a little bit longer to get figured out. Um, the fact that they both could be bridge deals could make it a little bit easier on the two sides because uh, you're not working out a long-term deal. Um, and I certainly think that's the way things are progressing. It seems to me as if, um, you know, with the – the cap situation for the Vancouver Canucks right now, it's still pretty tight uh, that that might be the most favorable way for them to go. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I would expect Pedersen to get done before Hughes, uh, but these aren't easy contracts to do, especially when you see uh, some of these second contracts uh, for defensemen uh, in terms of the big money's getting thrown around. Now, I know that guys like Darnell Nurse are in a different situation, uh, even Miro Heiskin a little bit. Um, so, mm-hmm. uh, but when you see some of these numbers being thrown up, it's got to be a little bit scarier for Jim Benning and Cox. Dan, hurt, hurt, hinder either player or the Canucks <laughs> rather that they have the same agent. Um, well, here's the thing. I always find this a little bit odd. I mean, um, because if you're an agent, you're doing everything in your power to get pinch every last penny uh, out of an organization for the client. And if you've got two clients looking for big deals, um, you know, Rob, are you loving Peter to pay Paul? So, uh, like, it's it's very tough for them to negotiate, I would think, top dollar when you're worried about your client as well. So I I, I would say I don't know how much it hinders or hurts. I mean, I guess the help is that you're, you're constantly on the phone with just, you know, one agency instead of working two agencies all the time to try to get these deals done. Um, and I don't really think there's a squeeze play for CAA in this in this position because uh, guys with those two players are in a different situation. So um, it, it is a good question. I, I, I will ask more agents if it helps or hinders. Uh, but right now, I don't think it makes a tremendous amount of difference. 
you know, Murph, the other big storyline coming out of free agency for the Canucks, obviously, you know, they make the huge deal for Oliver Ekman Larson and, and Connor Garland. They, they reshape their blue line. But the other big story was what they did for their AHL team that's obviously going to be relocating to Abbotsford. And, and it was funny. We had Jim Benning on the station on the People's Show right after free, free agency. And even he said, you know, he was a little surprised by just how eager guys from the lower mainland and guys with really good uh, careers were to come play in Abbotsford. How much of a strength and an advantage is that going to be for the club to have an AHL team that's not only just down the road, but that's stocked with guys that you feel really comfortable calling up and putting in an NHL game if you have to? Um, I think it's helped a lot. I mean, I think you see guys like Nick Batan uh, signing here where you, you can almost make certain that um, he probably wouldn't have signed uh, if the farm club was still in Utica. Um, players like that that are from the lower mainland. Um, so... I think it's going to help tremendously uh, that it's a line that you have, uh, you know, a bunch of staff close by. Um, so I, I think it's a big help. I think it's going to be a, a big advantage for this team. I think you can attract better talent. You can attract more fans. Uh, you're better aligned because, you know, you know Ryan Johnson is an, an hour away. So, uh, you know, certainly I think at first blush, uh, this is a big win for the Canucks to, to move uh, from Utica to Abbotsford. And not that Utica was a bad spot. I mean, in terms of fans and crowds it was a great ahl stop but logistically it just wasn't great for vancouver the other bit of news uh, from the canucks this week murph comes on the business side of things with the the announcement that michael doyle is going to be the new president of business mm -hmm. operations now usually i mean i'll admit i don't pay a lot of attention to what's going on in the business side of the organization it's pretty separate obviously from the hockey operations side but we do get these texts and these questions from listeners about saying, you know, look, there's been a lot of turnover on that side of things. Does that show that, you know, it's not a great place to work, that it's difficult to work for the Aquilini family? Is there, in your view, is there any validity to those concerns about the amount of turnover sometimes that we do see within the Canucks organization, even on the business side? Yeah, well, I mean, DeBonis was there forever, right? 13, 14, 15 years. I think that one's probably, you know, guys are going to move on uh, when they've had that much time and, and worked under a few different regimes as well, right? I mean, he was there with uh, Berkey, he was there with Nonus, uh, he was there with Gillis, right? So I think that was one. I like. I still nobody really knows why Stipek left. It kind of it went with went quickly and with really no explanation. So I'm not sure what happened there. I mean, certainly anybody that's good at business, it it could be tough to work for them. I, I you know, the Aquilinis uh, are probably tough bosses. You don't get to where you are without that. Doyle has been, um, you know, a loyal so soldier for them forever. Um, he's done a great job, I believe, with their top table group. And I think his desire was always to get back uh, into uh, the business side and the hockey business side. And perhaps that's why you're seeing this move here now. Um, so, you know, to answer your question, I'm sure some guys find the Aquilini's tough to work for. But I wouldn't put too much weight into the, into the um, uh, DeBonis one. And I can't tell you any information about the Stipec one. I mean, certainly every interaction I had with him, he didn't. He had some road trips with us. Was great, uh, but uh, other than that, I don't know the reason why he left because nobody really said anything about it. We're in conversation with Dan Murphy of Sportsnet for just a couple more minutes here, Dan. Dan, when you look at what the Canucks have done this off season, you look at what the Flames, the Oilers, I guess the Jets, because we'll keep them in the Western Conference. Do you think the Canucks, obviously with all the moves like the 17 free agent signings, a couple of buyouts, do you think they were the ones that improved their team the most? Well, I think Vancouver's forward group is definitely much better. Um, you know, I think you can make an argument that they 
the four group might be somewhere in the top 10 in the league, I think, uh, if everyone's healthy. Um, I don't know what to make about the defense at this point. I mean, both Edmonton and Vancouver's defense are, you know, kind of, you know, at this point, they don't look fantastic on paper. Uh, I mean, Vancouver's in huge trouble if OEL doesn't have the kind of season they believe he can have. Uh, let's be honest here. He's going to play a ton of minutes for Travis Green. He's going to be the top-minute guy. There's no question. Um, and you know what? If we're being honest, they're in a ton of trouble if Quinn Hughes doesn't have a bit of a bounce-back season. Right? I mean, he struggled last year. Now, it was a, a difficult season for everyone. Uh, he got off to a terrible start. But um, I, he didn't certainly didn't take a step forward in his progression, and he needs to do that this year. Um, the pool and signing is a bit of a head-scratcher in terms of the term and money, but the right-hand D market was crazy. Um, and, you know, and I, I know that the coach loved Hamannick and maybe it's a bit of an overpay, but it's just for two years. So I would say overall, when I look at everything that's been done, I think the only lock for me, if you had to tell me one lock or make the locks in the Pacific, it's, it's Vegas. After that, I would probably still handicap Edmonton uh, next, but like Vancouver, Calgary, Seattle, I mean, even throw LA into the conversation now with the improvements they've made. Um, I think one thing Vancouver has going for it is it still seems to be a weak division. So if you can beat the teams you're supposed to beat uh, and then take care of a couple of the Alberta teams or win those season series, then they do have a, a chance to make the playoffs. But um, you know, I, I would definitely not say they're a lock, and I wouldn't say that about Calgary as well. Murph, yeah, you said you're going to the, the tennis tournaments out east. Do you, are there fans in the stands for this? I think there's a certain amount of fans on center okay. court. And that's where Rob okay. Falls is. I'm on the secondary court, which usually right. houses, um, I think, in the neighborhood of 15, 10 to 15,000. I don't believe there's any uh, fans allowed on my court. So I'm wondering how many evil looks I'm going to get from players when I'm trying to talk and they're trying to serve. <laughs> because I'll be You're gonna... right over the top of their heads. And uh, the umpire is going to be saying, quiet, please, to me and not the fans. So um, You're going to be the I'm famous... You're going to be the famous Arash Madani whisper on the sidelines from the tennis tournament. He always gets no a little question. chuckle out of that. Hey, enjoy all. the time. I'll blame it all, it all on Jesse Levine. I'll just point to him if they look up at me. The color guy's fault. There you go. All, yeah. Always the best idea. Blame it on somebody else. Uh, enjoy the time out east. Enjoy getting on a plane and going out somewhere. And uh, enjoy the rest of the summer as well. And we'll talk to you leading up to training camp. All right, everybody. Get the jab. Let's go. <laughs> Thanks, Murph. <laughs> Have a good one. Oh, that's really going to get our texter to the inbox. Really yeah. happy with this. Yeah. If he's still listening, Jamie, I'm not sure if he's still listening right now. <laughs> well, but, I don't, uh, we've had a bunch. We've had a bunch of angry uh, texters uh, text in today, and as one of them said, you know, I, I am listening because you're the only people talking about sports. So there you go. Maybe that guy, the other angry texter, is still ta- is still listening as well. You know what? Hate listening, enjoying listening. I mean, it's all the same, right? Still counts. Still counts. <laughs> that's one of the same things one of the things that uh, Dave Pratt always used to tell me the haters gonna listen more and they're just it's gonna be awesome so hey enjoy it while you have it Um, I'm excited for Murph to go out east I forgot the National Bank it's not called the National Bank Open anymore but the two Canadian tournaments yeah no National Bank Open is the new name for it right Right, okay it used to be Rogers Cup yeah Right. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you. Um, I'm excited. I'm. It's it's a fun tournament. I've never been. I know people that have been. And actually, a friend of mine was there the year that Denis Shapovalov beat Rafael Nadal in the quarterfinals, where he put his name on the map, which was an incredible match. I've never actually been to. Well, it's a lie. I've been to Tennis Davis Cup when Canada played Italy at UBC a few years ago. It was really cool. It was before the Dennis and the Felix era. It was Milos. It was Vashik Pospisil. It was Dennis. 
Daniel Nestor, and right. I think Pospisil and Milos played in the singles, and Nestor and Pospisil played like an epic five-set doubles match. It was just an incredible environment. But that's one of my bucket lists is to go to either go down to Indian Wells and watch the one down there in Palm Springs or to go to the U.S. Open just to see yep. live tennis. It'd be cool. Yeah, I have never been to a professional tennis match. That's one of the one of the events I have never taken in. And yeah, I agree. That's a, a bucket list item for sure to see some high-level pro tennis. Awesome. Oh, awesome. oh goodness, do not clip that. Awesome stuff, uh, Jamie. Uh, let's head to a break. When we come back, we're going to get into a little notes and quotes, and we'll talk a little Olympics just to make our listeners happy. How about that, Jamie? You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon on Sportsnet 650. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. This is Rintoul and Sermon. Karen Sermon, Jamie Dodd in for the next uh, about half an hour, taking up to a Bick and a Boss this afternoon. Jamie, we... We got a lot of uh, listener submissions earlier in the show when we posed the question, like, what's one of the worst positions to play in sport? And the reason we were talking about this was because I was watching volleyball yesterday, specifically women's volleyball. It was the U.S. versus Dominican Republic. It was a great volleyball match. Um, But it got me thinking about it kind of sucks to be the libero because – it's just a thankless job. And I know, like, if you make a good dig, your teammates are very appreciative of it, but you're always in the back row. You're always getting the volleyball hit at you at 1,000 miles an hour, and you never get the gratification of actually hitting the ball down at someone like they're hitting at you. Like, it just sinks to me, like, it could be painful, and it's just, oh, you're always doing the same thing over and over just with no actual gratification that comes with it. Yeah, a lot of pain. An awful lot of pain going onto your forearms. Every time, right? And yeah, it's, I think people understand the importance of the position, but you're never the one finishing the play with an exclamation point. No, you're not. And so we asked our listeners to send some in. If you've got some more feedback, some sports thankless positions or ones that are kind of the worst in their sport, let us know. 650-650, we'll read them on air. But we had some come in earlier in the show, and this one from Shiloh made me laugh because it said, worst position, youth football referee. And it got me thinking about just these kids running around, not really knowing what they're doing. They've got helmets on them that are too big. You know, you've seen little kids play football. It's, oh, yeah. it's, it's endearing, but hilarious at the same time. And you're trying to keep everyone figuring out what the rules are and how to do it. I can imagine that's a very thankless job. It's probably a parent of one of the players on one of the teams. But still, it's like trying to corral these kids to figure out what they're doing. It's got to be very painful to do. I remember, so not football, but I used to uh, umpire for youth baseball when I was in high Mm -hmm. school, right? And I remember once in particular, I was doing a game, I think it was nine and 10-year-olds, which is kind of the first level where they start to pitch, right? Rather than coach pitching or or using a a pitching machine at that time, it was was the nine and 10-year-olds pitching. And pitching is really challenging. Pitching is a really (laughs) hard thing to do. Hitting the strike zone consistently is really tough. And I remember the league had a rule. You could only score six runs in an inning. And one inning, a poor kid just could not hit the strike zone and just walked batters until they scored six runs by walking oh. batters in. And there was nothing I could do. The, the balls weren't particularly close. I couldn't, you know, widen the strike zone a little. And I just, one, the thing is, I don't think the kid even felt that bad. He probably just didn't care about baseball that much. But it's just the boredom of it. The, the, right. It was just excruciating sitting there for however long it took to finally get that six run walked in so we could call the inning and let the other <laughs> team go up to bat. It was, uh, I don't know what I was getting paid, but it was not worth it. I volunteered to coach um, 
I coached high school basketball after I was done my playing days, but I also, while I was in high school, to coach spring league girls that were, I think were kind of, I, I want to say they were like grade two or three. All right. I don't have children. Um, so to all those parents out there <laughs> that put your kids in sports, uh, a lot of credit to the patience that you have, either coaching your kids or watching your kids play. It was tough. Like the the nets are still they're lowered a bit, so it's not as hard to get them up, right? Like right. you try and you try and um, encourage proper technique to a point, so you lower the nets. But you know, picking the ball up, running through, dribbling it again, then picking it up and running and dribbling. It's something that my patience level was. Um, I only did it for one year. I, I have to say, I'm not a better person to do it more than that because it was just one of the more painful things that I have ever done. Um, Speaking of painful, did you, Jamie, do you play, play beer league or slow pitch anymore? I know Greg plays slow pitch. No, not currently. I do not. Okay. So Marcus and Gibbons texted in, beer league slow pitch pitcher, so close to the batter. And the thing that got me about this was, you know how beer league starts. You're having a couple of beers and then the beer goes on, right? So yeah. your reactionary capabilities right. may not be as good in the moment. So as the game goes on, you're that close to the pitcher. Someone takes a swing at you. You know, you're kind of in firing range. Got to keep your head on a swivel, man. Got to take that beer league seriously. Protect yourself. Most thankless position in, is a defenseman for the Canucks. That's from Mike and Tawasin. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, we had uh, Liam, the pipe insulator, say, any position in water polo, they're out there literally trying to d- drown each other. Plus, that ball is rock hard. Water polo looks like, uh, yeah, exa- as, as Liam says, basically any position, no matter what position you're talking about, it looks like an incredibly painful, painful sport to participate in. Just the amount of effort, and as he says, the pain, the ball, the violence in it. A brutal, brutal sport. <laughs> Mike and Victoria, center in football. And we had someone earlier text in about offensive linemen in football, but center's probably one of the more th- difficult uncomfortable ones you want to play because you have to snap the ball to the quarterback properly and then try to get your eyes up and get ready to defend uh to uh, to defend your quarterback and there's not enough time to do that so you're pretty much getting knocked on your ass the entire time yeah pretty much yeah i will say you know yeah, someone else t- texted about the o-line as well you know it's thankless you don't get to score the touchdowns you don't get to make the sacks you just the, the best compliment you can pay to an offensive lineman is that nobody noticed you out there right because you didn't let anything bad happen i will say you know just in the last kind of five or ten years i think there's been a greater appreciation for mm-hmm. offensive line play right among football fans and you know i i brought up the uh the example of a running back in the nfl well the difference between a running back and the offensive lineman is yeah running back gets to score touchdowns they also don't get paid. If you're if you're a top-end offensive lineman, you get paid and you can have a long, successful career. So, yeah, you don't always have the glamour or the glory, but people within the game, they respect what you do. And, again, mm-hmm. at the top, top level, the rewards are there. Liam the Pipe Insulator says, Any position in water polo, they're out there literally trying to drown each other, plus that ball is rock hard. Have you, have you played water, water polo at all? I, I played... Uh, uh, like tube water polo, inner tube water polo in college. And so, what you know, even that? that, even that is a lot of effort, let alone if you were responsible for keeping yourself afloat the whole time. I, I don't understand. Explain, please. What do you mean? It's you're, you're in an inner tube. You have oh, a little that tube a- to keep you up and you play okay, water polo. Okay, so you're, you're not like, you know, in a tube coasting down, you know, the Penticton Canal. No, 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 no. it's, it's in a pool. Way. You oh, just okay, have okay. a tube that you're, that okay. you're wearing. I got it. Um, I've never played it, but I give credit to a lot of those players because – 
what the refs can't see is some of the fighting with the feet underneath the water, right? And from my understanding, oh, there's yeah. a lot of dirty tactics that go on underneath the water in water polo. Plus, yes, guys are trying to drown you from up top and push you underwater and get the ball back. It looks like an incredibly difficult sport, and you'd have to have a high pain tolerance and be very just tough in general to Yeah, play it's that a sport. brutal. It's one of those sports that, again, you know, as I was saying, I'm kind of always drawn to the obscure team sports at the Olympics. <laughs> You know, volleyball, handball, and water polo is on that list for sure because of the intensity of it. <laughs> I think it's called swimming lessons, Jamie. That's what came into our I'm just saying, look, it was an intramural sport. So, you know, you just get a team with your friends. And to make it easier, yeah. they give you they give you inner tubes. It was fun. It was a good time. Hey, I would do, I think, inner tube because the amount of treading water and swimming that comes with. Yeah, no, thank uh, you. No, thank yeah. you. No, thank you. Not something I want to do. So just to, to further this conversation, I I Googled toughest jobs in sports or something just before we sure. did this. And so a list came up in the Bleacher Report. And I want to read you a few because some of them are pretty – they're more about jobs in sports versus positions on the field. Um, number 20 was football laundry specialist. That would be a difficult job because there's a yep. lot of football to do after this. But the next one that came up, and I think you and Greg will appreciate this, teammate of A.J. Pruszynski. Yeah, that's a tough one, for sure. <laughs> so former White Sox manager Ozzy Guillen said, if you play against him, you hate him. If you play with him, you hate him a little less. He was uh, he was an interesting cat, wasn't he? He was a tough guy to like, that's for sure. Uh, what else is there out there? Uh, star player on a bad MLS team. That's another one yeah, that came enough, up. That came up there. This one would probably be tops of my list. It's not on this, but octagon cleaner. I mean, you, you know how my... My increased enthusiasm for yes. uh, UFC <laughs> has come under since the pandemic hit. It is true, though. Like, sometimes you look at the ring, the amount of sweat and spit, not to mention blood, that is everywhere on the on the ring there. It would be a thankless job to have to go in after every fight to clean that. Or not to mention try and clean it after all the fights and get it pristine for the next one. Well, and speaking of combat sports in general, you know the how the way that promoters build stars, right, is you find a bunch of not as good opponents so they can get a whole bunch of wins on their record. You build them up, you get people excited about them, and then you pit them against the other elite talent, right, once both mm -hmm. guys are established. So if we're talking about, you know, most thankless, toughest jobs in sports, what about being the guys that are used to build up the star, right? You know right? you don't really have a shot. You know you're probably going to get punched in the face. You know you're going to get put on a hold maybe, but you're there. You're a UFC fighter. It's a paycheck. That's a tough job, though, going into some of those fights where you know, man, I really don't have a shot here. Yeah, it's like it's literally like a human punching bag, right? Like that's all you are for yeah. it. You're just going to get paid. Just give me my paycheck. And unfortunately, it's a UFC, so you're probably not getting paid that much. Um <laughs> I'd be interested. Hold on. I, I, yeah. I would love because um, I I don't know quite enough about the sport and the different positions to say which one it would be. But there has to be a position in rugby that falls into this category, right? That's just utterly thankless and painful and brutal to play. So for any of our listeners out there who are rugby fans, rugby players, let me know what is the worst position in rugby. Because again, just as a as a casual person watching the sport. It looks like a lot of people are probably having a pretty tough time at rugby. Well, what is that one position that's, that's the toughest one to take? That is one of the sports where I really need to sit down with someone who really understands it and explain it to me as the match is going on. Patrick Johnson, if you're listening, if you want to, <laughs> I will rent your services uh, to have that happen because I just don't get the rules of it. 
you know, and there's so many positions and scrums and why they throw someone up in the air by their waist to grab the ball when it's out of bounds or something like that. Like, it's just not one of those sports that I understand. It's fun to watch rugby sevens, and I agree with you, Jamie. There's a lot of thankless positions, I think, on the rugby pitch, but it's just not one I watch, and I'm like, I really don't understand what's going on. Yeah, as I said, I don't know, and I don't know the positions well enough to to single one out. But I, I'd be excited to hear. Yeah, we have one text come in. The position called hooker in rugby okay. is the toughest one. So uh, if you can elaborate, explain why. Let us know if you have a different opinion about which rugby position is toughest. Let us know. Second place finisher in a hot dog eating contest. That's true. Like whoever yep. goes up against Joey Chestnut, right? Like you go up because it's. You know, it's the um, July 4th, so it's a main event, and you get the notoriety. I'm sure there's some prize for second place. But in general, if it's just another one, you know, I don't know, you go down to your local wherever, and you're, you you lose and finish second. Like, I ate all of that for nothing. Yeah, you you um, you debased yourself. You put yourself through misery on, on national TV for nothing. I mean, even Joey Chestnut. I mean, obviously, he's made a career out of it, but is it worth it, right? I don't know. I I can't answer that. Only Joey Chestnut can answer that. Certainly for the second-place guy, I don't think it's worth it. Apparently, there's something called front-row prop in rugby, and someone says prop in rugby. Yeah, we're getting lots of prop votes in in rugby. uh, Yep. I appreciate this. I just don't understand exactly what that is. I have no idea. So, it's, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Jamie, let's get to notes and quotes. Who's in the top six? Getting pucks out, getting pucks deep. Who's in the crease? Really none of your business. And who's in the press box? It's time for Notes and Quotes. Not a lot of quotes today, but a lot of notes. Um, Let's start with the NHL news from around the league, Jamie. We haven't really touched on this too much. Um, This is from at Russo Hockey on Twitter. Mike Russo, who covers the Minnesota Wild. Continued good news on Marco Rossi's health front, but he'll... um, He'll take part in Austria's Olympic qualifier August 26th to 29th. Uh, The prospect leaves for training camp on August 16th. The reason I bring this up, because Marco Rossi played in the World Juniors in Edmonton, in that bubble, right? He played for that German side that was shorthanded because of all the the COVID outbreaks. And then he comes back, he got COVID, and then he comes back to Minnesota training camp, and he had severe heart complications uh, from COVID. This is a healthy 19 year old kid right you know like someone you think is in the prime of their life pristine physical condition and COVID gave him complications for his heart so he actually went back to Austria uh, for the season he recuperated with his family good news is he's been back skating this is even more fantastic news the fact that he's going to take part in the Olympic qualifier for um, Austria because it's really scary when you hear about kids these age he's a kid 19 years old and COVID affected him like that well, and, and that's been one of the kind of the ongoing questions about COVID is, is these, mm-hmm. these instances where there are lingering symptoms, right? And for athletes who have contracted it, and he's one of the more high profile examples, you know, you really don't know what, what the impact is going to be down the road. So great news, obviously, for Rossi himself, for the Wild, but just for hockey fans in general, mm-hmm. I think that, you know, it seems like he's going to be able to get back to what looks like an extremely promising career here sooner rather than later. Absolutely. Be part of that uh, Minnesota Wild that's up and coming. NHL.com. Pierre-Luc Dubois will wear number 80 with the Jets this season in honor of his former teammate, Blue Jackets. uh, Former Blue Jackets teammate, Matthias 
Kivlikens, sorry if I can't pronounce that, he died July 4th. We all know the circumstances behind that. He's switching from number 18 to number 80 in honor of his former teammates. Uh, just a really feel-good story, James. Yeah, it is, and a, and a nice gesture from from Pierre-Luc Dubois. You know, obviously not on the team anymore, but still willing to to take that step, right, to, to honor his, his former teammate is, is great to see from, from Dubois. Yeah, absolutely. Um, good news about staying with the Jets. The Jets have signed defenseman Logan Stanley to a two-year deal, $900,000 per season. Obviously, last year, Jamie taking a step into the NHL. Big birding defenseman. He was, I believe he was one of the players that maybe the Kraken could have took, take, um, taken in the expansion draft, but they decided to go with Mason Appleby. So good news for the defensive jet, uh, depth of the Winnipeg Jets. Yeah, and they're really high on Logan Stanley, as you say, that big, strong, physical defensemen that are kind of coming back in vogue now. Everyone's obsessed with having those guys that can protect the front of the nest or front of the net, and that is Logan Stanley to a T, right? Six seven, well over two hundred pounds, big, tough guy. Not going to give you a lot on the offensive side of things, but I know they're very, very high on Stanley in Winnipeg. This one came in, Montreal Canadiens. This is one we were expecting. They had basically locked up their entire coaching staff. We were just waiting on one more, but it came in earlier this morning. Uh, the Montreal Canadiens announcing their three-year contract extension for assistant coach Alex Burrows. We are all excited for him out here in Vancouver. He joined the Canadiens coaching staff on February 24th. Of course, he was brought up when Dominic Ducharme took over for Claude Julien. He spent two seasons in Laval. He's a, on a bit of a fast track. Jamie, Absolutely. in terms of a rapid getting, rise so far. Yeah. yeah. And we, we did think that maybe he would have gotten the head coaching job in Laval just to give him some head coaching experience, but I guess they want him to get the more experience behind the NHL bench. Yeah, and I mean, great news, first of all, for Alex Burroughs, and you, you got to ask, right, I mean, how long is it before he's being interviewed mm -hmm. and considered for NHL head coaching jobs? As you said, an extremely rapid rise. The reports out of Montreal are basically universally positive about – you know, his ability to interact with the players, to build trust, to communicate with them, which is so important now in coaching. That's kind of the number one thing teams are looking for before you even start to consider the systems and the X's and O's. So he has that. The The reviews, again, from Montreal are extremely positive. And it does seem, you know, sooner rather than later, we're going to see Alex Burroughs behind an NHL bench as head coach. And I'm extremely excited. It's great. You know, the thing I always loved about Alex Burroughs is how – he was always so good at improving his game, learning, adding new mm -hmm. skills, new skill sets to his game. And he's doing the same thing now after his playing career, right? Like immediately deciding to go the coaching route and just becoming really good at it really quickly. So I was a huge Burroughs fan when he was playing here in Vancouver, and I'm glad to see him having so much success as a coach as well. It seems like Montreal is a training ground for new head coaches because Luke Richardson's – he signed an extension, but he's also on the short list apparently for – people to probably get a next head coaching job in the NHL. So it's him, Alex Burrows. Good for Burr to get that extension done. Quickly to the NBA. We haven't talked about this at all. Jamie, it came down after our show yesterday, but DeMar DeRozan sign and trade with the Spurs to Chicago. So the big three in Chicago now is Zach Levine, DeMar DeRozan, Lonzo Ball. They sent out a graphic of Lonzo Ball and DeMar DeRozan in the uniform. It looked really weird to see DeMar in a Bulls uniform. It really did. I don't know why. Yeah, and this was a this was a head scratcher for me, to be honest. You know, no disrespect to Demar Derozan, by all accounts, a great guy. You know, we know what he did for the Raptors during his time there. But I, I you know, he just, he's not he's not a modern NBA player, and I think there's major questions about, you know, if Demar Derozan is one of your two or three best players that you're relying on, how high is your ceiling 
as a team. So yeah. to go out and pay him that much money, and not only that, I mean, they had to trade a first-round pick to San Antonio in order to make the San- the sign-and-trade happen as well. I don't know. I don't really get it. I don't, I don't, I don't think it's a great fit next to, you know, you already have a ball-dominant scorer mm-hmm. in Zach Levine. Lonzo Ball needs the ball in his hands to be the most successful as a playmaker. DeMar DeRozan's not really an off-ball guy who's going to do a lot of catch-and-shoot. We know he's not a great three-point shooter. So, like, again, you know, I, I like DeMar DeRozan a lot as a person, but as a player, I'm not sure he's the answer to any of the Bulls' problems at this point. Well, I think the Bulls are a little further away from probably making that next step in the NBA's tier of things. Maybe they think they can kind of get there, but I don't think DeMar DeRozan gets them over the hump of getting to, say, like a a fifth or even fourth seed in the Eastern Conference. Kemba Walker's on the move. We know earlier this year, Brad Stevens says, I'm moving to the general manager's position in Boston. Didn't like what you did for me when I was a head coach, so we're going to trade you to OKC. OKC is buying him out. He's going to sign a new contract with the New York Knicks. Uh, he's been bought out for two years, $74 million. That's how much he had left on his contract. Like, the NBA is absurd. I'm sorry. You can buy out $2 million. Or sorry, two years, $74 million left on a contract. Like, I yeah. can't even wrap my head around that one. And it is a little surprising because I believe he had to accept the buyout, right? So he's going to leave some money on the table for the mm-hmm. chance to go play for the Knicks. But it makes sense. He's from New York, played his high school basketball there, played his college not too far away at UConn. So a local guy. And you just got to think, you know, the chance to go home, play your home games in Madison Square Garden, wear the jersey for the Knicks. And, you know, this isn't the Knicks of the last few years. They're not going to be title contenders, but they're a decent team. You're going to be mm-hmm. at, at least a competitive team. So, you know, Kemba Walker's made a lot of money in his career. And I imagine just the allure of going home, being the face of the Knicks for a couple of years, getting to play in front of your hometown crowd in particular. We know how much basketball means to that city. That's a, that had to be very, very enticing for Kemba Walker. It's a bit of a crowded backcourt there. Now they've got R.J. Barrett, um, now Kemba Walker. Derek Rose did resign as well there. Uh, he does come off the bench. He had to take over some basically starters minutes last year because the point guard that they had was starting was pretty unproductive, but a bit of a crowded um, backcourt. He does have to kind of reinvent himself because he had two pretty injury-ridden and poor seasons with the Boston Celtics. It just really wasn't a fit with Boston. So we'll see what he can do in New York City. Olympic news. Let's recap it, Jamie. Gold for Andre de Grasse in the men's let's 200 go. meters. Yes, five medals now in the Olympics for him. Two in these Olympic Games. But the best part about this one is we get to hear the Canadian national anthem. Yeah, it's it's so awesome. Gold for Andre de Grasse finally at the Olympics. I mean... He's still got a chance to do something special in the 4x100, but no matter what happens in that race, I mean, this moment, yeah. it's it's going to be iconic in Canadian sporting history now, right? It's an incredible accomplishment, an incredible performance by DeGrasse, and it just so thrilled for him and so thrilled that we all got to watch it. And coming up today, you'll get to see a few events this evening. Some will go into the night. You'll know when you wake up tomorrow morning if Canada also has the greatest athlete in the world right now. Of course, I'm talking about Damon Warner. Um, not to mention, though, uh, I got to get his name back. Pierce LePage. He's third in the decathlon going into the second day. They have the 110-meter hurdles, the discus throw, the pole vault, the javelin throw. So three throwing events in a row. And then they wrap up the day with the longest run of the day, 1,500-meter casual run around the track. 
He has an 81-point lead on the Aussie for second. Fellow Canadian is in third with 112 points back of second. Could you imagine two days in a row? We have not only... He's not the fastest man in the world, but I guess you could... We'll just put him up there anyways with Andre Degas winning gold. And then we could possibly have the greatest athlete in the world in Damian Warner. Like, that's incredible. That would be pretty good. That would be pretty good. I mean, Damian Warner... You never know what's going to happen on day two, but right now the pace he's on, he's the uh, he's leading. He, he looks like a really good shot to win the gold. I felt sorry for the athletes. I think it was Mark Lee, who, by the way, he's been doing so much calling of the games and the, and the athletics. He's starting to lose his voice. I felt a little sorry for him. I'm like, I hear you, dude. I understand what you're going through. But I think he said, we'll see you back here in 12 hours or something like that. And I was like, no, that doesn't make sense. Maybe he meant 24 hours, but no, maybe 12 hours, right? Because know. they 12 were... hours could make sense, right? Get a quick sleep in, then get then they get right back at it. That makes sense. Hey, guys, you just finished five events, just ran a 400-meter sprint to end the day. Yeah, get eight hours of sleep, maybe five. Come back, do it all again. I'm sure they're uh, pretty, pretty used to that. We still don't have an update on the Canadian women's soccer match. It's supposed to go at 7 o'clock tomorrow night here on the Pacific Coast. Uh, expectation is, Jamie, I do think they're going to move it. I just think It sounds that, like they are, yeah. Yeah. If for the fairness of the athletes and the fairness of competition, it's just to play a match like that in 40-degree heat. I went to go for a walk yesterday. I left the house just to go to Shoppers at, like, 3.30 in the afternoon. I think it was 25 degrees. Walked out the door, walked back in, and got my car. No, half an hour walk each way was a little too hot for my liking. Oh, yeah. I, oh, yeah. I can only, only imagine what playing a soccer match um, 90 minutes in 40-plus degree humidity heat can do for you. Uh, Jamie, that's us. That's it for us. Another one in the books. Two down. There you go. One more to go for you. Two more to go yep. for me for the end of the week. Awesome stuff again. Greg Ballack, back at Mission Control. Great stuff. Roger Shergill, again, amazing show produced for us today. Listeners, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Up next is Bick and the Boss on Sportsnet 650.